I always think it's interesting, you know, I come up here and, and uh, of course, we just love Pastor Tim and, and uh, everyone is just a distant, you know, second compared to his really just gifted, gifted teaching. And if you go other places and, and listen to people on the radio, you know that that's true without a doubt. Um, it's funny to me just to see kind of the differences between like me, the B team and him. And uh, one of the differences is that uh, for some reason, you know, the pastor always stands out here and greets people when they leave, but we never do. So uh, I just think that's a gift, you know, because after you wake up now from your nap, you just get to get out of here quicker. <laughs> and uh, so uh, that, that's actually not such a, such a bad thing. A lot of times you'll see the guest speaker, too. They'll have a, a, a little bottle of water that they, you know, drink, and they need that, to, I guess, to keep their voice uh, in shape and so forth. I've never done that. I've always thought it's kind of odd a little bit that the person drinking the most water in the group is the one that can't get up and go to the bathroom <laughs> in the middle. So you guys are all free to do that, and I won't take offense at all. But uh, the other big difference, of course, between um, myself and Pastor Tim is, is he's paid to be good, and you and I are just good for nothing. So uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> Oh, so, so, so. Let me, uh, let me just open in prayer. Father, it is just a glorious day that we have uh, come to uh, celebrate that you truly are the worthy one. And that's why, you're, why we are here, is to lift your songs in pr praise, to pray, to worship you, to, be bow, to bow down to you, and to, uh, to be fed and to, uh, to glean from your word that it might change us from the inside out, that we might live for you uh, moment by moment and day by day. And once again, I just want to uh, lift up the, uh, the Guatemala team, uh, probably has touched down by now and uh, after um, a long flight in the middle of the night, uh, they're just going to hit the road running. And I would just pray for strength, endurance, and that at every turn they would be naming the name of Jesus and that you would just fill them with the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would uh, uh, represent uh, you well and love others well. And uh, just what a blessing to be called the body of Christ and to enjoy each other this morning. And I thank you in the precious holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. About 12 years ago, uh, a gentleman, Gary, uh, moved in next door to me. He was in his mid-70s. And he had grown up camping and fishing and loved the outdoors. And on occasion, his dad, when he was a young boy, would bring him uh, up to Idlewild even, where they would hang out. And uh, so when his parents passed away and they left him uh, an inheritance, it was his dream to come up here and buy a little cabin that he could just spend time in the mountains. And uh, from the very first time that I met Gary, we just hit it off. We loved to just hang out and talk and and uh, having the outdoors and love of the outdoors in common, um, we would just sit up on his front deck and uh, just talk. And a lot of times, uh, as I would drive home from work, he knew what time I was coming, and he would sit out there waiting. And as soon as I would get out of the car, he'd yell, Hey, Bob, come on over. And so I'd go over, and we'd hang out and just uh, talk about all kinds of things. Uh, he was a troubled man. He had a very, very difficult marriage and uh, really one of his joys. Uh, was to come up and just get away, <laughs> just get away and uh, leave his wife down in San Marcos where he was from and uh, just come up and kind of live those old memories of being up here as a young boy uh, in the mountains. 
Um, he had one son, and the boy was fairly troubled and uh, disappointed him often. And uh, he would share some of that with me. And so uh, as I got to know him, our relationship began to deepen and grow. And uh, God would lay it on my heart, you know, Bob, you just really need to start, you know, telling him about Jesus. And I struggled with that, and I didn't know what to say, and I couldn't work up the courage. And he had this little dog that he just dearly loved. And uh, one day it suddenly took ill and died, and he was just heartbroken. And so I used that just a little bit to just share with him uh, that God cares about you. He cares that you're broken, uh, but never enough. I bought him a little book that explained that maybe a little bit better uh, than I uh, felt I could. And he accepted it graciously. But, but most of our spiritual conversations were really just pretty superficial. He had been living here about two years and, and was doing some work out in the front yard uh, when his back started to hurt pretty severely. And so he went home and called me a couple days later. <clears throat> and he said, Bob, I've got some bad news. He said, I've got stage four. Got stage four bone cancer. And so they put him in the hospital right away. And a few days later, I went down and visited him. And, and I tried and tried to talk to him more about God and offered him another book. This time, he wouldn't take it. And uh, we just kind of left it at that. And um, a few days later, I got a call from his wife that he had passed away. Um, to say the least, uh, there was a certain part of me that was really filled with guilt. And I knew that I could have done better and somehow uh, just fell far, far short of what I believe God was calling me to, which was to share the love of God with him. And long before Gary, really, God had been pressing me to learn and grow in the area of understanding and developing relationships and sharing Christ with non-believers. And so this morning, I'm going to start with uh, really sharing with you just briefly uh, several, or several um, passages in the scriptures that kind of lays a framework for me, that helps me. These are the ones that I turn to. These are the ones that I lean on um, as I think about just doing life with my neighbors, doing life with those who don't uh, uh, follow Christ. And um, I'm not really going to spend much time uh, going over them, but really just kind of read through them. Uh, I would encourage you to go back at another time and study them uh, on your own. And uh, we just don't have time for that this morning. Uh, but in your, in your study guide this morning, you do have these passages of Scripture. They're not in their entirety. Uh, just to kind of give you a little snapshot, if you'd like to follow along, I encourage you to open your Bible now if you like, and you can turn to these passages, and I'm going read to uh, read through each one of them in their entirety. Um, we, we just have just such an incredibly gifted pastor, and, and Pastor Tim uh, his giftedness is just unpacking the scriptures, and that most certainly is to be our steady diet. And uh, so we're just blessed by him, but that's not going to be that this morning. I'm going to kind of brush over these and just use God's word to, uh, to speak uh, to your heart. So I'm going to start with, uh, obviously, uh, the book of Luke, chapter 10. So if you want to open your Bible and follow along in its entirety, you can do that. Uh, but Luke 10 uh, chapter or chapter 10, verse 25. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story well. And uh, for me this morning, this is a great place to start. Uh, verse 25, it says, And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? 
And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And of course, Jesus knew exactly who this guy was. He knew what he was all about. He really wasn't there to get an answer. He was just there to to justify himself, to get affirmed by Jesus. If he would have cared about uh, his question, he would have asked something like, How do I care for my neighbor or how do I love my neighbor? But instead, what he was really after was putting people into two categories. Who's the neighbor over here who I'm going to love? And then who's the people over here that don't make the list, who aren't my neighbor that I don't have to spend any time with? That was really what he was after. And so Jesus, in reply, gives him this story. He tells him a parable. And it says at verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. And now the passage in Matthew, if you want to turn there. This is towards the end of Matthew in chapter 25. And it's just before the crucifixion. Jesus here is teaching on the final judgment. Beginning with verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brother, you did it to me. Loving God and loving people, two fabulous chapters, two wonderful passages that talk about how the two are just completely inseparable. 
If you love God, you will love people. If you love people, you should be loving God. The two go together. And so as I put these two uh, portions of scripture together in my mind, one of the questions that come is then how do I love? And, of course, the great love chapter is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, so that's where I'm going next. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I've often thought as I wake up each morning and usually pray through one or two psalms that this would be another wonderful passage to pray through, and, and perhaps someday we as a church body can collectively pray through for many weeks 1 Corinthians 13. What a great way to change us from the inside out. But beginning from verse 4, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jump back a couple of chapters, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 9. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Don't miss what Paul is saying right here. This is very important. He is re-clarifying what he had said in a previous letter, one, one that we don't have, by the way. This is a letter that we don't have recorded anywhere. He apparently had told them not to hang out with sexually immoral people. But they had confused that with sexually immoral non-believers. And so now he's clarifying. He's saying, hold on, hold on, wait just a minute. That's not what I meant at all. You have to hang out with the sexually immoral non-believers. If you don't, how does anyone come to faith in Jesus? You are to be salt and light. You are to be in the world, but not of the world. Continuing with verse 11. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty with sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then Titus chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so these are just some of the verses, some of the biblical truths that tell us and give us a foundation that we are to love others well. As I go through my day, as I go through my week, these are the the verses that come into my mind. And so first of all, it reminds me that we are called to love God and to love our neighbors, both believers and non-believers. And yes, number two, our neighbor includes both believers and non-believers. Number three, we too were once haters of God. That's where we used to be before we came to Christ. So the reminder here is to walk humbly. To walk humbly because we too once were foolish ourselves. And number four, that we're all saved by grace. This is the biblical foundation for loving well. So how do we love others and tell them about Jesus? No matter what you're doing, you're not doing the wrong thing. There's no formula There's not a right way. There's not a wrong way. If you are naming the name of Jesus, I just encourage you to keep doing that. But there are some things that we can do that I think will help connect us with our culture and do better. So here they are. My list. Number one, by spending time. Spending time. And why is that? Well, because non-believers are skeptical and, quite frankly, a lot of them simply don't like us. Lately, I've been reading a biography uh, of a woman, and she explains her journey to Christ, quite the book. But in her book, she writes when she was a non-believer how she looked at Christians, and this is what she said. Christians are small-minded, uncharitable, and immoral. They eat meat, believe in corporal punishment, and violate human and environmental rights at a fevered pitch. They deny a woman's right to choose and believe that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian obedience of the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. You see, when non-believers look at us, they do not believe that they need to be saved from sin, they believe that they need to be saved from us. And so to break down those barriers is going to take time. And I would say it could take years, years of a relationship, one, two, three years maybe. In fact, it may take a couple of years before they're even ready to be invited to church. Or invited to a Sunday brunch. Please don't tell Pastor Tim I said that. (laughs) Number two. How do we love others well? By being vulnerable. Let them know what you really struggle with. Share your own failures. Open up your heart to them. Number three. By being genuine and honest. Take off the mask. Where do you hurt? You don't have your life in perfect order. Let them know about it. Number four, by being a good listener, 
What does your neighbor struggle with? Show you care. Where are their hopes and dreams? What are their hobbies? What do they like to do? Listen carefully to their life story. How does what they are looking for in terms of answers to life's most difficult questions intersect with the gospel message and show them that Jesus is the only answer to what they're asking? Number five, by being ready. Their life will come to a place where it will unravel. It will someday come to a point of crisis. Be ready. Be ready to help, to comfort, and to show that you really care. Number six, by sharing meals together and inviting them into your home. It's one thing to hang out at the coffee shop. It's another thing to take somebody out to dinner. And those are great things. If you're doing those things with non-believing friends with the hope of building a relationship, please keep doing that. But it's another thing entirely to invite them into your home to share a meal and simply do life. That's where the walls will begin to come down. And this is an area in my life where I'm starting to work on and my wife were talking about how do we do that? How do we make that work? How do we invite people into our homes who don't know Christ on a regular basis? And we're working through it. And I'm hoping it comes to a great place soon. Number seven, by accepting who God has placed in your life to reach out to, especially those who live on your own street. You see, God never gets the address wrong to those he wants to reach out to, no matter how much they offend you. In other words, do we use our Bible as a filter, as a standard to push people away and to build walls? And to say, nope, you are offensive to me. Your lifestyle is offensive to me, so I will have nothing to do with you. Get your life together, and then I will consider hanging out with you. Your foul mouth, your pro-abortion agenda, your political party, your gay lifestyle, your ex environmental extremism, your alcohol or drug addiction, the way you treat your spouse, the way you parent your hatred for America, your hatred for law enforcement, your hatred for the military, and the list goes on and on and on. Clean that up and then we'll talk. Then I'll show you that I care. Or do we use a Bible as a way to invite Jesus into the conversation and to deepen it? Do we use it as a means to draw people in? Or do we use it as a means to push people away? About three years ago, I was walking around the block with my little granddaughter, Cora. We did this almost every day. And this particular day, as I was walking down the street, we were about three houses from getting back home. And I heard this shout coming from back in the bushes, back behind these trash cans. Help, help, I need some help over here. So it caught my attention, of course, right away. And I walked down there. And there was Ed. He had fallen down. I knew him a little bit. We had said hello briefly in passing here and there, but beyond that, I really didn't know him quite very well. And uh, he was quite overweight and had severe diabetes. 
his legs were becoming very, very weak, and they were infected. He had bandages that needed to be changed often. And, and uh, on occasion, he would fall down, and he simply could not get up. I tried to get him up, and he said, you know what, Bob? It, it's a waste of time. I've been here, done that. Uh, there was nobody at my house. It was just Cora, and I said, you're going to need to call the fire department. They've been here before, and uh, if you call them up, they'll come out. They'll check me over, make sure I'm okay. They'll pick me up, and they'll get me back into the house. And so I called, and of course, within a few minutes, they were there, and, and uh, I kind of hung around for a little bit, and, and they got him back into the house. And so the next day, I went over and uh, wanted to check on him, and Ed came to the door, and we talked a little bit and began to strike up a, a conversation. And through this conversation, you know, uh, Bob, I, I, I have difficulty getting out. I don't walk well. Would you start taking my trash for the dump? to the dump every week for me. I said, Ed, I would love to do that. No problem. This was a great opportunity. So God just plopping this opportunity in my lap, quite frankly. And so every week I would come up there and I would grab his, sorry about that. I would come up and, and grab his trash and, and grab mine and I would take it to the dump. And this went on week after week after week. And sometimes he would be out in the front. And so we'd sit and chat for a little bit. And slowly over the weeks, um, I invited him into my house, wasn't interested in that at all. No, no, not coming to your house. Don't want to have a meal with you. That was okay. I was okay with that. But he said, you know what? You can come in my house. I'll invite you into my house. I said, sure, Ed, that's fine. So we went in that day for the first time. And as I walked in, he said, well, now you know. Walked into the living room, and there across on the other side was a big fireplace. It was a big flat screen TV attached to the top of the chimney there. And on the other side was a stuffed recliner. And as near as I could tell, that's where he spent his life 24-7. He ate there. He slept there. He rested there. He watched TV there and didn't do anything else. Stacked about four or five feet high were boxes and trash and books. And packages and there was a little tiny narrow path about this wide one that went straight back to the kitchen and the other one that went straight back to the bathroom the rest of the house was solid junk he said you guessed it Bob I'm a hoarder didn't really bother me too much sitting in front of the little recliner there was a stool just about like this one right here so I sat down on the stool and we started to talk and every week or two, I would come by, and I'd sit on the stool, and we'd talk. Ed was what you would call a grumpy old man. Yep, for sure. We did have some very common interests. He loved the outdoors, too. He loved camping and fishing. And as time went by, we called them campfire stories. And I said, Ed, I'd call him up. I said, Ed, I'm coming over for a campfire story. And I'd come up, and I'd sit with him there on the little stool. Eventually, the stool disappeared. I had no idea what it went to, perhaps buried under all the other stuff. And so then I would just sit on the floor at his feet. And pretty quick it became evident that Ed did not like Christians, had nothing to do with them. Interesting enough, he had two daughters. One was a believer that was out of state that he loved and adored and got along well with, didn't see very often. The other one was not a Christian and lived only a couple hours away, and he couldn't stand her. They had long since broke off their relationship many, many years ago. He told me about his 17-year drug and alcohol addiction, a broken marriage from many, many years ago, and just a very, very troubled man. But somehow we hit it off. 
And early in our conversation one day when I was hanging out with him, he said, you know, Bob, I know why you come here. He says, I know why you come here and I know why you take out my trash. He said, you're one of those Christians and you have to do that. I thought for just a moment. And I said, I don't have to do this, Ed. I said, Ed, I do this because I love you. And big tears begin to well up in his eyes and run down his cheeks. So time went by and we just continued our campfire stories. I'd come over and sit on the floor. And eventually, Ed said, you know what, Bob? You're one of the nicest Christians I've ever met. And the walls started to come down. Last October, he took sick, and so I went down to Eisenhower, and I visited him. I remember the day well, because it was the day that my grandson Uriah was born. So I went down, and I saw him, and we told campfire stories in the hospital. The World Series was playing. We watched a couple of innings, and then I zipped over to Molino Valley to see my new grandson. Time went by. He got well, and he came back home, and we continued our relationship. Six weeks ago, Ed became seriously ill. And through a mutual friend, I learned that he was back in the hospital and that Ed had felt that he had come to the end of his rope, that there was nothing else the doctors could do, and he felt like he just needed to come home and die. So I went down to the hospital again to visit him. I walked into the room, and it's kind of that awkward moment where you walk into these double rooms, and there's a curtain there, and somebody else was sitting in the first room, and I kind of made my way around the curtain, and there he was in bed. His, he was turned over on his side. His back was towards me, and, and I could see he was hooked up to all kinds of monitors. He had a tube coming out of his nose and IVs coming out of his arm. So I sat down in the chair next to him, and I reached over, and I put my hand on his hand. And then he leaned over and he said, I knew you'd come. So I sat there and I held his hand and I stroked his arm. And I started to tell him a little bit about the God of the Bible. And then I paused. And I said, Ed, do you want to hear more? And he said, lay it on me, Bob. So I told him about the God of the Bible who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for him. And that if he would accept him as Lord and Savior and repent of his sins, that he would go home to live with him forever. And so I asked him if he wanted to pray and accept Jesus. And he said, yes. And so I led him in a prayer, and I said goodbye, and the next morning he came home, and by now, the caregivers had come and cleaned out the front room and put a bed in there, and so I went in and sat down by him, and I held his hand, and I stroked his arm, and we talked, and we told some more campfire stories, and then I prayed for him. 
And for the next couple of weeks, I would come two or three times a day and tell stories. But I would always pray for him before I left. And one time as I was getting ready to leave, I got up and started to walk away. And he reached out and grabbed my hand. He said, Bob, you forgot to pray for me. So I stopped and turned back and I prayed for him. And I always prayed the gospel message. There were hospice people there. There were caregivers there. The daughter from out of state had come. And I wanted to make sure they heard about the God of the Bible, the one who came and saved dad. A few days later, I came up to the house and there was a group of three women out in the driveway. And I learned later that that one was was the daughter that I'd met before. The other one was a sister, and the other one was the daughter who had come from San Diego, the one who was not a believer. And as I walked up, she came up to me and she said, are you that religious man? I thought I knew what she meant, and so I said yes. And then she said, would you pray for us? And she began to sob. So we held hands, and I prayed for them. And I prayed the gospel message so that they would hear it. And I thank God for Ed's new life in Jesus. I continued to come the next few days, and Ed began to slip away. It was harder and harder for him to stay awake, and for the next couple days he wouldn't wake up. But I would still talk to him. And I would still pray for him. And three weeks ago, I came and he woke up. And he looked up at me and he said, Bob. And then he smiled and he winked. And then he said, sleep. And then he closed his eyes. And the next day, he went home to be with Jesus. Love God. Love people. Walk humbly and remember who you once were. And always remember that God never gets the address wrong. There are people that live next door that need to see Jesus in you. You see, the gospel comes with a key. A key to your heart, a key to your neighbor's heart. But most importantly, it comes with a key to the heart of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I'm so humbled by your love, and just the opportunity to be your mouthpiece to a dying man and to see one turn from death to life. What a joy. What an absolute joy. And someday, Ed and I will tell campfire stories again. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for a body that loves well and teaches all to do it better. And we thank you in your precious holy name.